Well, this morning we're going to look at really an age-old question. What must a person do to be saved? Now, immediately out of the gate, I want to really modify that question for us. Because I think these, ta- these days it seems less common for a lost person to actually desire to be saved. See, in former days and years past, there was really more of a, a collective consciousness of sin. People felt the need for salvation because of what society had set up. In other words, a criminal would get locked up and the public response would be, justice has been served and he can now pay for his crimes. And so sin, in a cultural sense, was felt, it was understood. There was right, there was wrong, there was sin, there was righteousness. We generally understood that culturally. But now, in our current age... Everyone is more entitled. That's really, if I could summarize the the spirit of the age right now, in this country, it's entitlement. Nobody sins, according to them. And if they do, it's most likely due to some kind of trauma they experienced or oppression or some kind of negative behavioral influence. People say things like, well, it's certainly not because of anything that you've done wrong. It's because of you're a, a victim of some kind of a circumstance or a situation. And frankly, the, the markers that have led to this is uh, wokeness and intersectionality. They've all afforded everybody the ability to claim some level of victim status, provided they can prove themselves to be disadvantaged somehow. And so for our purposes and our culture today, there are no sinners, only victims. That's how we see it. In fact, I would argue that the dominant sentiment to assume right now is that everybody's going to heaven. They all think they're going to heaven. You go to most funerals today. They're not funerals. They're now celebrations of life, which is fine on the surface, but we have removed the sting of death. We don't talk about the eternal things anymore. And ministers will get up and they'll declare the deceased to be in heaven even in regards to whatever they believe they don't even know. I've gone to funerals where a person who has given zero evidence of saving faith and things are said about them being in heaven, they don't, even, they don't even believe in heaven. And by virtue of this, most people assume, based on what we do, that when they die, they're going to go to a better place regardless of what they profess, regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether or not they love Jesus Christ and have been forgiven. However, when moral people, moral people get to the end of their lives, they're always, it seems, left with the nagging question, was it enough? Did I do enough in this life? Am I good enough to get to heaven? I walk a lot of graveyards for my own personal reasons, but I do it, and I I see all kinds of epitaphs on, on stones, and I was in a graveyard recently, and I saw a stone, and the epitaph was this, he tried. Now, I don't know if that was a joke done by the family or if it was a serious thing. But the question is, well, how do you know? How do you know for sure that when you die that you will go to be in heaven with the Lord? And the question is, well, what will God say? Because death is coming for everybody. I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but we're all going to go. At some point in this life, it will come to an end. And when that comes to an end, what will God say? Will your life be good enough to warrant heaven? That's the question that was essentially posed to Jesus in Matthew 19. So turn over your copy of Scripture to Matthew 19. This topic of conversation was right on Jesus' doorstep here. And we're going to see that he enters into this exact same conversation with a, a young man. Now, at this point in Matthew's narrative, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's on, he's on a journey. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's going to eventually get there in, in chapter 21. He will eventually go to the cross in chapter 27, but for now, he's traveling. He's on his journey, and people are approaching him from everywhere. And if you know the Gospels, you're going to recognize the visitor that comes to him at this point. So Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. 
But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished, and they said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So who is this person who comes to Jesus? Well, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this very same event. We know from verse 22 that he's rich. We know from verse 20 that he's young, and if you read Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, we know that he's referred to as some kind of a a ruler. Maybe he was a synagogue official or some kind of a, a person of status. So this is the story of the rich young ruler. According to Mark, this says that the young man ran up and knelt down before Jesus. Now this was a strange thing because according to custom, men didn't do that. They didn't run. A respected man was, was undignified. It was a social faux pas if he was seen running. It, would, it seemed childish. But it was also an ostentatious, display, or an ostentatious display. It was very dramatic for this young man to, to run up to Jesus and, and prostrate himself on the ground. Why? And what does he say here? He says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, if you read both Mark and Luke's gospel they record his question a little bit differently. We read in their Gospels that says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this has led some people to ask the question, well, why the discrepancy between Matthew and then between Mark and Luke? Well, frankly, we don't really know why Matthew records it differently than Luke and Mark do. But remember that all the Gospel writers are recalling all these events many years after they happened. So it could be something as simple as Matthew simply remembers not the good teacher part, but the good thing part. Of course, it's also entirely possible that he says both things. It's interesting because in the King James Version of this, it's good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? But even here in Matthew's gospel, it's certainly implied that the young man is referring to Jesus as a good teacher. Well, how do we know? Because in the very next verse, you see the way that Jesus is responding to the question. He says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So he doesn't talk about the good thing that he's asking. He talks about the fact that he's calling him a good teacher. It's a matter of who is good. And so it's clear that he most definitely did refer to Jesus as a good teacher, as reflected in Mark and Luke, even if Matthew doesn't record it here. So you see that you can, you can sneak in or, or, or place in Mark and Luke into this text as well. He does say, good teacher, what good thing must I do? But the whole exchange really opens up a larger question. The, the issue is not semantics. The issue is a bigger question. The rich young ruler has just asked Jesus what he must do to inherit or obtain eternal life. What must he do to go to heaven? And he phrases it this way. What good thing shall I do? Now, this portrays a common notion that goes back to the very earliest times of mankind. The idea that someone can do good things, which then effectively makes them into a good person, and by that, they can gain entrance into heaven based on their merit, based on what they do. In this way, God will see my good works, he'll see that I'm good, and he will bypass all the bad things I've done, and then he will let me into his eternal dwelling, into heaven. 
And this belief is the virtual belief or the identical belief of every world religion on this planet. Every works-based religion. For example, Islam. I'm just giving a couple examples. Islam teaches that your good deeds must outweigh your bad deeds in order to enter paradise, they would say. And actually, to quote Surah 23, verses 102, 103 of the Quran, this is a quote, those who, balance, those who balance of good deeds is heavy, they will be successful, but those whose balance is light, they will be those who have lost their souls, in hell they will abide, end quote. So there's a scale. If, if your good deeds are more than your bad deeds, you'll go to heaven. If it's not, you're going to go to hell. That's how Islam sees it. Buddhism teaches something similar in the way that they don't believe in heaven or hell as you would and I would see it, but they would believe that that a person must obtain a a higher level of existence through reincarnation until they reach the last stage, which is nirvana or enlightenment. How does a person do this? That's the trick, right? They must do good deeds. They must increase and build and purify their karma which is the sum of their actions in all states of existence, they would say, if your karma is good, you will eventually get to nirvana. Even Judaism embraces a works-based ideal. And while Jews, even today, don't believe that they need to be saved, why? Because they believe they're God's chosen people. They believe that they are the people of God. However, they do believe that they must perform good deeds. They call them mitzvahs. If you perform mitzvahs, that's good for you, and God is pleased with this. And so we see that the rich young ruler, he's thinking along this sort of collective understanding. I have to do good things, and he's a Jew, so I must perform these mitzvahs, these good deeds. So he's saying, teacher, good teacher, what good things should I do that I may inherit or obtain eternal life? And notice how Jesus responds in verse 17. He doesn't even answer the question directly, does he? How does he respond? He says, why are you asking me about what is good? And then he says, there is only one who is good. And again, if you lay in Mark chapter 10, he says, the one who is good is none other than God. He says, no one is good except God alone. The implication is, why are you even talking about good as if it's coming from you? How do you know what good is? Now, some liberal-minded scholars have seen this question that Jesus asks as sort of a a way to devalue himself. When he says, no, there's only one who's good, and we know that's God, that he's somehow saying, "I'm, I'm not good. Why are you asking me about good? That's how they read that. Is he devaluing himself? But we know that's not true, because Jesus refers to himself as being one with God the Father. So when he talks about only God being good, he himself is the I am of God. He is good. Frankly, the question misses the point of Jesus' statement to attack Jesus on the nature of calling himself good or not good. That's not the point. The point is this. He's addressing a prideful young man who's calling him good teacher, and he's pontificating about good deeds. Because the implication from Jesus is this. Young man, why are you talking about what is good? You don't have a basis for understanding what good is. See, because only God is good. No one else, not the rich young ruler, not you, not me, no one else is good, and therefore nobody by themselves has a standard on how to define goodness. We, we do it all the time, don't we? Oh, we talk to somebody, we like them, they seem nice, we say, oh, he's a good guy. Now, we all understand that we're talking about earthly goodness. It's a relative goodness. He's a good guy, meaning he doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. He's nice to people. Maybe he's generous. He's not abrasive. But we don't know the condition of that person's heart, do we? I don't know the condition of your heart truly. You don't know the condition of my heart truly. Because here's the thing. True goodness is based on the character of God. God is good. His inherent righteousness, his inherent loving kindness, it's God's moral perfection and moral purity. That is what is good. That is the standard of true goodness. So if you want to know what good is, you have to look up. You have to look at God and say, okay, compared to God, what is good? And that's when you understand 
what good truly is. And so that's why Jesus tells this rich young ruler, this rich young man, you don't even know what good is. If we're not talking about God, how do you know? Why do you call me good teacher, my friend? And so Jesus is going to instruct him on what is true goodness. And to verse 17, he actually gives him, he gives him a little bit of a bait there. He gives him something to chew on. If you wish to enter into life, he doesn't pull back. He doesn't say, I'm not going to answer that question. He does give him an answer. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. To which the rich young ruler answers, well, which ones? Got to love that, don't you? Oh, youth, right? I can say that now that I have gray hair. Oh, youth. Which commandments, he's asking, Because there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Which ones, Lord? Well, James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, 612, and yet stumbles at one point, he becomes guilty of all. How does that work? Well, if you sin against one of God's commandments, it places you under his divine judgment, doesn't it? And if you're under God's judgment, it's as if you've broken all the laws. You see that? What does the Lord require, therefore? Matthew 5, 48. Jesus specifically says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be pretty good? Almost there? Better than other other people? No. What does he say? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard to enter life is perfection. Yet that's not how Jesus answers. Verses 18, 19. He gives them, the man asks him, which ones, which commandments do I keep? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus does here is he quotes from the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go off and rattle off all 613, but the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments really typify and demonstrate and sort of signify the totality of all of the commandments. You could take all 600 commandments and sort of stack them up into categories and look at the entire span of all of them, and it's basically the Ten. Basically. But he starts here with the sixth commandment. You shall not commit murder. Then he quotes the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Then the eighth, you shall not steal. Then the ninth, you shall not bear false witness. And then he goes backwards and he quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, I don't know why he does it in that order, neither do scholars, where we scratch our heads and, Lord, why did you quote it that way? We don't know, so therefore I cannot give an answer. But it's interesting to note that out of all the Ten Commandments, we see a clear division. Commandments that pertain to loving God and commandments that pertain to loving other people. Commandments 1 through 4, which is known as the first table of the law, the first table, pertain to honoring and worshiping God. The second table, commandments 5 through 10, address not doing wrong to other people or loving other people. It's interesting that we see Jesus only quote from the second table, at which one point he offers a a summary at the end of verse 19. If you know, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not one of the Ten Commandments, right? It does come from Leviticus 19.18, and it pertains to the entirety of all that second table. It's a summary statement of all those six commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder him, right? If you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery and take his wife or cheat on your wife. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to bear false witness. If you love your neighbor, you're going to treat them right. And so that's what Jesus says to him. Do all these things. And how does he respond? Verse 20. My goodness. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? The audacity of that, right? I mean, think about what this man is saying. Yeah, I've done all that. And it's interesting because Mark actually records that he says, I've done all these things from my youth up. In other words, I've always treated other people well my entire life. I've never wronged anybody. I've never murdered. 
I've never stolen. I've never lied. No. It's a bit brassy, don't you think? That's, that's pretty bold for this young man to say, I've kept all those commandments from my youth up. So what else do I have to do? What's next on the list? Now, it's entirely possible. I want to be as gracious to this rich young man as I possibly can. It's possible this young man had a good reputation. Maybe it's possible that outwardly he was nice to people. Maybe, by all earthly standards, he was a good guy. Maybe he was known for being a a very young, uh, nice, polite, generous, gracious, kind person from, from his childhood all the way. Maybe he was a good kid. We have lots of people like that in, in this world, don't we? I, a lot of the kids, most of the kids, I'm, I'm going to say for the sake of protection, all the kids here, right? But don't, don't you see? I mean, I see all the time. we got really good kids, don't we? We really do. And I, I, I want to just kind of pause the, the play button here and go over to the side and say, I'm thankful to God for all the children at our church. We have really lovely, godly disciplined, earnest children here. I praise the Lord for that. But here's the hitch. We see good kid, and then good teen, and then good young adult. It's very easy for us and them to think, well, I'm all set. I was raised in the church. I, I used to go to Bible study. I went to youth group. I read my Bible. I went to prayer. I did my prayers with my family. Never missed a Sunday. And we think we're okay. But it's actually a really dangerous place to be. Not that we don't want our kids to be good by earthly standards. But it's so tricky because we could fall into the sin of pride and be like this rich young ruler and be like, I've done all this stuff right. I'm not a bad person. It's a trap, my friends. Of course, Jesus very easily could have referred back to his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, maybe the man hasn't committed murder, but if he's ever been angry with his brother, he's guilty of sin, Matthew 5.22. Ever been angry before at somebody else? Murder. Same, same standard of righteousness to God. Maybe he hasn't committed adultery physically, but if he's ever looked with a woman, at a woman with lust before, he has already committed adultery in his heart, Jesus says, Matthew 5. Maybe this rich young ruler hasn't stolen anything. Maybe he got all of his money earnestly. But if he's ever coveted what doesn't belong to him, he has sinned. And so, yes, maybe the the young man had done well outwardly. Maybe everybody saw his visible righteousness. But there's no way that he was flawless internally. There's no way. Because the Bible says none are righteous. Not one of us. And I would even argue there's not one of us even by 9.30 in the morning, who hasn't sinned in some way. Now, I don't know what that is. could be very different for all of us. But even the, the thoughts and intents of our hearts can betray us and can render us guilty of judgment. Yet he doesn't understand. He doesn't see it. He says, what am I still lacking? He doesn't understand, friends. He doesn't see His sin. He thinks he's okay. Jesus is about to show him. Now, at this point, you know, when I read passages like this and I get to about the end of verse 20, I get a little nervous for the person in the passage. I'm thinking, boy, you're going to get it. It's going to be bad. I get nervous. I really do because I can see myself here saying such a foolish thing. Jesus has every right to eviscerate him. How dare you claim to be faultless, you wicked sinner? He could say that. He says it to the Pharisees all the time. But what, is that what he does here? No. In fact, Mark includes in his recounting of this story, he notes the point that at this point in the story, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus hears this man say this very foolish, wrong thing. And Jesus, in his heart, he's moved. He feels a love for this young man. He feels compassion. He feels tenderness. He looks at him and he says, Oh, my child, you don't understand what you're saying. You don't see yourself the way that I do. 
You can't even look into your own heart the way that I can. Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't get vengeful toward this foolish, rich young man. It's in a spirit of love that he confronts the young man with the one thing that's keeping him from heaven. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. This is interesting. He tells the rich young man, if you wish to be complete, what does he mean by that? Complete. The word in the Greek for complete is teleos. It can mean whole. It also means perfect. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to be full and mature, remember God's requirement for heaven is complete moral perfection. Perfect in every way from birth to death. Perfect. But for the rich young man, There's one glaring sin. It's not that he's not guilty of these other ones. Because again, he's probably outwardly a a good kid. He's not outwardly guilty of all those things, even though he's sinful in his own heart. There's one glaring problem. Sometimes when I do counseling, and that's what happens, is that you're working through issues, and there's one big, huge thing that's standing out like a sore thumb, and you can't even get to the smaller, deeper sins until you attack the most egregious and and forthright thing. It's like I can't even get to your marriage problems until you realize you have this major problem. So there's always this one thing that kind of sticks out, the besetting sin, the indwelling sin, the most egregious thing. But Jesus, he prescribes four things here. He tells the young man, the first thing I want you to do is go and sell your possessions. Liquidate everything. Get rid of it all. And once you've done that, second thing, I want you to take all of that, the proceeds of all of that, and give it to the poor. Just give it all away, he says. Notice he adds this. If you do this, you will have treasure in heaven. This is very interesting. He makes a promise here. It's not that Jesus is desiring to impoverish this young man completely. He's not here for his misery and suffering, even though there is a a, a godly purpose of misery and suffering sometimes. Rather, he's basically saying this, I want you to trade in all your earthly treasure for heavenly treasure. I just want you to exchange it. You go and sell everything and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Okay, I want you to make that swap. Number three, then I want you to come. The Lord is inviting him. He's, he's calling him to himself. I want you to come. And then lastly, he says, follow me. Become my disciple. Be my disciple. Notice, this is virtually the exact same way that he calls all the other disciples, doesn't he? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all, they dropped their nets. They gave up their fishing business to follow Jesus. Matthew himself left a very lucrative tax-collecting business, all because Jesus said the words, come and follow me. He, he closed up his shop, he dropped the business immediately, and he followed Christ. And so don't miss what he's doing. Jesus is giving him a chance right now. Sell everything you have, get rid of all of it, come and follow me. Be, become a disciple with me. He could have been the 13th one here. Now, Jesus had more disciples than that, but you know what I'm talking about. He's calling him to discipleship right now. So here's his chance. You want to you go to heaven? You want to have a, a life that is righteous and complete? Drop everything and follow me right now. How does he respond? Verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Oh, this breaks the heart, doesn't it? Jesus offers him life. He's he's come with, I mean, you all belong to Christ, I hope, I pray. Members of this church certainly do. But can you imagine Jesus just saying, just come with me, just just be with me. We'd jump at the chance, wouldn't we? He doesn't do it. He walks away, grieving. 
But after all, Jesus answered the question. It wasn't because he didn't have an answer, right? The rich young ruler, he walked away grieving. Why? Because Jesus has just revealed to him his greatest sin. And what was it? Notice that Jesus never quotes the first four of the Ten Commandments, right? But what is commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. See, Jesus summed up the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But what is the first and greatest commandment according to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love God and love others. But that's what he's talking about. Love God. But for the young man, his God was money and possessions. His greed had supplanted God on the throne of his heart. And so when Jesus tells him to remove the false God that's already in his heart and then follow after the true God... He can't do it because he's not truly good. He doesn't truly want God. He's a sinner, and he doesn't want to repent. And so he walks away, grieving, sad. Now, no no, no doubt Jesus would have been sad too. I mean, we we grieve reading this, and we're 2,000 years removed, never met the guy. Jesus certainly was grieved. After all, he he loved the young man, it says in Mark. And yet he watched him walk away, sad. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that's not really a very effective way of evangelism. Letting the guy go like that. But actually, my friends, it's the only way to do evangelism. It is the only way. Why? Because what Jesus does here is he brings in the law To reveal the sin of the sinner. If you don't do it, otherwise there's no need for salvation. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus can save you. A person goes, save me from what? I've got a wonderful plan for my life too. So what? Remember Galatians 3.24. The law is the tutor, the schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law has a purpose. If you live by law, yes, you'll die. We're not saved by law. That's the point. But law reveals sin. It reveals the need for salvation. Jesus here convicts the young man with the law. He starts with the second table, and then he goes to the first. He says, yeah, maybe you think you've kept the second table, even though you haven't. But you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't repent. He shows him his sin. He shows him his idolatry. He shows him his faithlessness. But then he offers the gospel of grace. Of course, at this point, the gospel looks slightly different than what we know it to be because he hasn't yet gone to the cross. There's no cross yet. But all those who followed Jesus followed him to the cross and then met him at the cross and then met him at the resurrection and then met him beyond. Do you see what I'm saying? We now look back and we see the cross and resurrection and ascension. That's how we understand the gospel. But for him at that point, it's follow me, stick with me. The gospel is the good news That Jesus died to pay for our sins. He's the just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. A good God for wicked sinners. And Christ, he would go to the cross and satisfy God's wrath that was meant for sin. And earn us a place in heaven. And then he arose the third day to bring new life for all who would repent and trust in him. And so we present both the law and the gospel, the bad news and then the good news. That's how we evangelize. If you only ever give them the law, you're, you're a sinner, you've broken God's law. If you just hammer on the law, which was what legalists do, 
Legalists say, do good things, be a good person. That's legalism. But if you bring the law and then the gospel, the gospel says God has sent his son for you. God is offering forgiveness. God is offering to pay for you. God is offering life. God is offering justification. God is offering you hope and peace and joy. That's the good news. Of course, after watching the rich young ruler walk away, he says, verse 23, to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice he doesn't say it's impossible. He he does say it's difficult, though. It's hard. How hard? He gives an illustration, verse 24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been a lot of varying interpretations of that verse, verse 24. It's been said even in recent years, this is very popular, that this phrase has to do with the existence of a, a tiny gate in the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And this tiny gate was known as the needle's eye, they say. And the whole idea behind this tiny gate was it wasn't the broad gate where all the traffic went in. It was a smaller door, and you'd go through this door to get in the city, and then you, if you had a camel with you, the camel couldn't fit through this little tiny door, so it had to take off all the, the burden of its load, get down on its knees, and come through the gate on its knees, empty-handed. And that sounds great. I've heard that taught and from a lot of pulpits. It comes from an allegory attributed to St. Jerome. But the problem with that, and I hate to burst your bubble if you've been taught this and believe this, but I hate to burst your bubble. Uh, scholars don't think this is actually true at all. Why? Well, because this is the, there's no other place anywhere in antiquity that it's talked about. Furthermore, the, the, needle, the needle's eye as a gate was never known to exist in Jerusalem at all. There's no plans or schematics. None of the old historians even talk about this gate. So we don't think that that's actually anything at all, even though it's, it's a great allegory, it's a great idea, it's certainly true that we, we can't come to Christ with anything in our hands. We do have to come to him empty-handed on our knees, that's true, but that's probably not what Jesus is referring to here. Another view here is that scholars, some scholars have tried to argue that when he talks about the camel going through the eye of a needle, it's actually a, a scribal error that somehow Jesus is talking about not a camel, but the Greek word camelon, which could be the word translated rope or cable. So they try to argue that, oh, it's, it's difficult to get a rope or a cable through the eye of a needle, and they try to justify it that way. But again, there's no plausible evidence for that either. No, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is speaking in rabbinic parable. That's what he's doing. Rabbinic hyperbole. He's speaking figuratively and illustratively. Why? To make a point. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and you think that's impossible, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Is it because all rich people don't go to heaven? No, that's not true at all, right? There are rich people even today who love the Lord Jesus and they go to heaven. So why did Jesus say this? Here's why. Because those who are rich tend to make a God out of their wealth. See, there are actually two ways to become rich. One, you can either earn it or you can inherit it. Those who inherit wealth generally tend to grow up believing that they're better than everybody else. And those who earn their wealth often become proud at their own abilities and succeed and they become entirely self-reliant. So they they are a self-made person. In both cases, it's hard to convince a rich person that they are actually spiritually bankrupt and need the Lord. A poor person, on the other hand, they know that they have nothing to offer, they know they have nothing to give, and they need the Lord. They're often humbled by their circumstances, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Keep in mind here, he's actually not even talking about money at all. It has nothing to do with money. You could have the mentality of a rich man and have not a penny to your name. It's about the heart. This is all about the heart here. That's why 
1 Timothy 6.10 says, it is the love of money, not money itself, the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. It's also why Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. But if then the light is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? Then he says, no one can serve two masters. Either they will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He's not saying don't have anything. That's not his point. Rather, it's about the status of your heart. And it's interesting because he tells the rich young ruler, give and sell everything. Just, get all, just liquidate all of it, 100%. But if you look at Zacchaeus, story of Zacchaeus from Luke's gospel, Zacchaeus humbled himself before the Lord and gave up half of everything in bearing the fruits of repentance. For the rich young ruler, his whole heart, his whole heart was clogged up with idolatry. And so for him, the only way to unclog that idolatry and remove the idol was to repent and get rid of all of it. It's not about percentage, friends, at all. 50%, 10%, 100%, whatever the percent. It's not about percentage. It's about what is going on in your heart. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then we see the disciples in verse 25 says, When they heard this, they were very astonished. They were shocked. And they said, Well, who then can be saved? Who then can be, who, if, you, if, you can't, if a rich man can't go to heaven, then who can be saved? Now, why are they making such a big deal about this? Why are they asking the question about that? Well, as with many in that day, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And oftentimes, even if you read Proverbs too, it's, it's, it appears as though those who are impoverished and poor are under God's judgment. It almost seems like poverty is judgment and punishment. Wealth is success and blessing. So certainly, God is pleased with this moral, upright young man because he rewarded him with such great riches. So here's a, an upstanding, rich, young ruler who's, a, by all standards, a good guy, and you're telling him he can't go to heaven? What gives? If that blessed man can't be saved by his faithfulness and good deeds, then what hope is there for me? I've got nothing to offer. Exactly. Lord, if not him, then who can be saved? Verse 26. And then looking at them. Now, this phrase, looking at them, there's more behind this in the Greek. It's as if he's staring deeply into their hearts looking upon them. He probably had a beat here where he just paused and looked at them. And he said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now we get to the heart of the matter. Now, of course, we know that God can do all things. He's limited by nothing. It's very easy to quote this verse and talk about some ambition that you have. And you pray about it and say, oh, Lord, I want to do this amazing thing. And I know for me it's impossible, but for you, all things are possible. We, we can proof text our ambition with Bible verses. That's not what he's talking about here. The context of the passage is what? Salvation. Salvation. He's talking about this. That with, when with regards to salvation, it is impossible with people. We don't do it. But with God. God can save anybody. And the farther away they are from God, we look at them and we say, they're, they're gone, forgotten, there's just no hope for them. That's not true. Now, they may be far away, and our hearts grieve. You all, I'm sure, know people in your own life, maybe in your own family, who are so far away from God, you just don't even know what to do anymore. 
I was even praying this morning about a friend who is far from God at this point. But our encouragement, our hope, is that nobody is too far away. As long as they're alive, as long as they're still here, there is always hope. There's always hope. Again, with us, it's impossible. We can evangelize and beat them in the head and give them everything they want and bring them to church and handcuff them to the pew and whatever we're going to do. It's impossible with us. But with God, salvation, all things are possible. That's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? Because of the fall, because of the fall and the sinful nature of all people, doing good is not enough. In order to be good enough for heaven, it's impossible. That means giving enough, serving enough, being kind enough to people. And I'll tell you, Christians get caught in that trap. They serve and they give and they participate and they serve and they give and they just begin, they get in this cycle. And we do, this, we do this stuff. And we get burned out and we get worn down. And our faith begins to suffer and fail and we get depressed and we go down and down and down. And we wrestle, we say, but Lord, didn't I do enough? That, that's false religion. We serve and give and love and do all these things out of an abundance of joy. Out of an obedience of faith. We don't serve and give to each other because it's going to accomplish anything for us eternally. No, yes, it's treasure in heaven, but that's just crowns and whatever else he has, which I don't even understand, frankly. That's not the sum of my salvation, what we do here. No. Salvation is about God redeeming sinners and pulling us out of the fire. It's about his glory. And so if you're caught in that trap, Lord, aren't I doing enough for you? Stop. Stop. And know that it's not about that. All of us, all of us, apart from grace, have nothing to offer. By ourselves, our righteous deeds that we think are righteous are filthy rags to God. Even on salvation, Ephesians 2.9, salvation, it's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. We can't brag about it. Salvation is only possible when God chooses to save a sinner. That's the only way you come to Christ. He must extend grace and mercy. He must pull us out of the pit. He must give us a new heart That's the new covenant, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. But those whose hearts are filled with idols, whether pride or riches or status or worldly ambition, the only way to come and follow Jesus is to remove the idols in the heart through repentance and faith. For some of you, it might be a matter of plucking out eyes and cutting off limbs, figuratively speaking, mind you. It might be a matter of getting rid of a relationship that you know is toxic to you, a sinful relationship that maybe you're engaged in. Maybe it's a business that you run. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior that you follow. Maybe it's something that you watch or listen to that has you. Maybe it's things that you think about yourself, pride and arrogance. Whatever it is, whatever is in your life that is stopping you from obeying the very first commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, of not having any other idols in your heart, having no God before him, whatever is stopping you, repent. Even right now, repent. After all, what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul, what good is it? Or the Lord declares, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must die to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Again, we don't do that by works, beloved. We don't. Your good deeds will not save you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, and you're just doing your best to try 
I want to try my best and I, I hope the Lord will forgive. I hope that it will work. I hope I can do enough. Stop. It's futile. No, instead, you must recognize your complete lack of, of, of ability to come to him. You must recognize your own fallenness and your barrenness. You have nothing to give him. But by doing so, that's repentance. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm bankrupt and I'm sorry for my sins. And I want to be right with you. And then by faith, you trust in Jesus Christ. You believe in him. Lord, I know and I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And it's only by your grace through my faith in you. That's all I have. That's all I have is I trust you to save me. And by God's grace, he saves. And so, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. If you haven't already, stop chasing things. Stop chasing deeds by themselves. Come to Christ by faith. And then what does he do? Ephesians 2.10. At that point, we become his workmanship, don't we? New creations. And then he gives you things to do. And you walk in them, in obedience and in joy and in love. But it is by grace through faith, no other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for just seeing what this looks like. And certainly our hearts break for this rich young man, And Lord, I have hope that because you had a love for this man, that Lord, maybe you chased him down later. Maybe he turned. Maybe he's in heaven right now. Lord, we don't know. We're not meant to know. But we are meant to know that what you say is binding on our hearts, Lord. That we don't come to you because we do good deeds. We come to you by repentance and by faith. We trust you. We come to you empty-handed. We say, we have nothing, Lord. Save us. We have nothing, Lord. Sanctify us. We have nothing, Lord. Have mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who does not know you, that you would just break them down, remove their hearts, remove their idolatry from their hearts, and give them a love for God, that they would desire God above all else, and that by that, faith, and by that love, you would be pleased. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.